following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, good morning. Good to see you on this first Sunday in Advent. I'm trying not to get too close to the fire here. Avoid getting burned, bit of a health and safety issue. But um, it, is, it is the first Sunday in Advent, and uh, I, I like talking about Advent because it, it's, a, it's a specifically Christian way of framing the Christmas season. It's not just about Christmas. It's, it's Advent, and Advent is that, is that season of uh, hoping and longing and expecting Christ to come. And, and so this is just the beginning of that journey um, from now until Christmas Day. And so what we're doing is, is trying to put ourselves back in the place of those who first expected the Messiah to come in the Old Testament and tap into a bit of that, all of that longing, all of that hoping, all of that expecting and, and the anticipation around Jesus coming. And then, of course, Advent is also about Jesus coming again. And so we're longing and we're hoping for Christ to come again. And so we, we, we cultivate that so that we have that sense of expecting and anticipating Jesus to come afresh into our lives in the present and expecting him to move in some new ways and do some new things in us and come afresh into our lives and into our church. And so that's Advent, and that's why we have the, the Advent wreath. And so I thought what I would do this morning, seeing as though we're starting the Advent journey and we've kind of left Ephesians behind us now, but I thought that we would uh, go to a passage in the Bible that taps into a bit of that hoping and longing and expecting for Christ to come, passage from the Old Testament. Uh, most of those passages, most of those kinds of passages are in the book of Isaiah, but uh, I don't want to go to Isaiah because we're going to spend a lot of time next year in the book of Isaiah. We're going to do a whole journey through Isaiah next year, so you can be getting ready for that. Um, so we're not going to do Isaiah, but instead I thought that we would go to this little book, this out-of-the-way little obscure book called Micah, which is not one of the more well-known books in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not as well known as the as the Isaiah uh, prophecies, but it's a it's a pretty significant book. And if you can find your way there, use the table of contents page if you have to, because uh, it doesn't get a lot of airtime these days. It's sort of tucked away there with the minor prophets, among other books with strange names like Nahum and Obadiah and Habakkuk and these guys. It's it's, it's in that it's in that space. Uh, but Micah has some important things to say to us, and it has a particular little prophecy in the book of Micah, which is one of the key prophecies leading to pointing to the birth of Jesus. Uh, and it has a very specific purpose and a very specific function uh, in in paving the way and setting the scene for the Advent story. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Micah chapter 5, if you can find your way there. And if you need a Bible, by the way, there's some on the back table. But let me read this passage for you, just the first four verses of Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. A few years ago, there was a group of us from Shaw that went on a trip to Israel. We had a great time, spent two weeks there, and on one of the days of this trip, we spent a day in Bethlehem. 
Uh, and Bethlehem is still a city today. You know, some of these biblical cities now, some, some of them are just in ruins now and there's nothing there, but others of them are still cities and Bethlehem is very much still a city. Uh, it is not far from Jerusalem. It's about nine k's to the south of Jerusalem, but it is separated from Jerusalem by a huge wall, this big concrete wall with snipers every few meters. And this is because Jerusalem sits on the Israeli side of the wall uh, in Israel, and Bethlehem sits in the West Bank as part of the Palestinian territories. And so they're quite separate areas, quite separately governed uh, areas. And it's not easy getting between them. You have to go through security checkpoints, and it's, it's quite an ordeal. But we went into Bethlehem, and we spent a day there, and our tour guide took us to this nativity shop in Bethlehem. And if you can imagine, just this whole store, full of handcrafted wooden nativity sets. It was amazing. And so I think we gave the, the local economy a huge boost that day in buying up large and sending them back and getting them shipped and shoving them in our bags and all sorts of things, paying for them, of course. But uh, we you know, got in amongst it with all of these various size and shape nativity sets. It was fantastic. And this shop was owned by a Christian family. And uh, I think that's why our tour guide took us there. He knew this family. He knew their situation. And as we talked to them, it became clear that life is not easy in Bethlehem. It's not easy today for this family or, or many others, as a, as particularly as a Christian family. Uh, Bethlehem has a hard time. It, it, there's a real economic squeeze in that, in that city um, because of the troubles between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And so Bethlehem kind of gets economically pressed. Um, there's violence sometimes in Bethlehem because it's right on the border. And so when there are uprisings uh, among the Palestinians, Bethlehem often is, is caught in the crossfire of that. Uh, and as a Christian family, sometimes Christians in Bethlehem uh, are targets of persecution from Muslims as well, Muslim extremists, which is, which is very sad. And so for all those reasons, over the years, there's been a real exodus of Christians from Bethlehem. Uh, there used to be a lot of Christians there. Back when Israel was founded as a state in 1948, there were 80% of Bethlehem residents were Christians. Today, it's 12%. So over the, over the decades, the Christian population in Bethlehem has gone down and down and down. And the sad irony of that, of course, is in the birthplace of Jesus, there are fewer and fewer of his followers than ever before. And as you, as you talk to Christians there, they know the only hope for real and lasting peace there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet there are fewer and fewer people able to represent that gospel because there are fewer and fewer Christians there. It's, uh, it's a troubled city and a troubled part of the world. And yet, Bethlehem, as we know, has such a huge and rich biblical history. It's such an important place. It's, it's such a significant city, isn't it? In the biblical story, in the whole unfolding of God's plan, it's a special place for Christians. We know it, of course, as the place where Jesus was born, the birthplace of Christ. And you can go to Bethlehem, and you can go to the church of the nativity there, and there's a star there, which apparently marks the spot where Jesus was born. And you can touch the star if you want to. Amazing, isn't it, that Jesus was born in a church? Very convenient, I thought. I always thought it was a manger, but apparently it's a church. So you can go to the church, and that's apparently where he was born. I don't know how you can know exactly where the spot was, but apparently they think they know, so there you are. But it's very special, and Christians through the centuries, including us, have gone on some kind of a pilgrimage to Bethlehem for that reason. But what we often forget is that Bethlehem was a significant city before the time of Jesus. That it had significance not just in the first century, as the place where Jesus was born. But the significance of that place goes back several centuries earlier than that, all the way to this prophecy in Micah. And Micah was written 700 years before Jesus. 
So just get your head around that time frame. 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, you've got Micah, very different time in Israel's history, very different set of circumstances, very different empire at work, totally different. And yet the significance of Bethlehem comes back to here, to this passage. You, you, you see there's not a lot there about the Christmas story itself. There's no shepherds and wise men and angels and so on. But that's the reason, this passage is the reason we sing songs like, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It all starts here. And as you probably know, places in the Bible are significant. The places where things happen, they are important. It's not random. Bethlehem wasn't random. God didn't just close his eyes and point to a place on the map and say, that'll do. There's a, there's a significance to Bethlehem. There's particular reasons why God chose this place, this location, as the birthplace of the Messiah. And this passage starts to draw out a bit of that. So let's look at this prophecy a little bit more carefully. And we have to look at it first within the context of its own world and its own day, Micah's day, before we look at its significance for us. But it does have significance for us if we're patient. As soon as chapter 5 of Micah opens, and you read verse 1, we are thrust into the middle of a crisis. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. The city that Micah is talking about is Jerusalem. The siege he's talking about is from Assyria, the great enemy nation to the north. Assyria was a violent nation. It was a bloodthirsty nation. It was an oppressive nation. It was bent on conquest. It had already swallowed up the northern kingdom of Israel to the north, and now it had its sights set on the little tiny kingdom of Judah in the south, and it was at the door, and it was about to attack. That was the reality that Micah is writing into. This was a very troubled time for the city of Jerusalem. If you're living in Jerusalem in this time, in the 7th century BC, you lived with the very real threat that any minute the Assyrian soldiers could charge down your door, either kill you on the spot, take your family, take you off into, into captivity, to be prisoners, to be slaves for the rest of your life. You may never see your family again. That's the reality you're living with in Jerusalem at the time. This was a dark time in the nation's history. It was, a, it was a despairing time. People were desperate. They were absolutely hopeless. And into that dark, dark time, Micah, the prophet, speaks. And he speaks this word of hope. And he speaks this word of deliverance, this word of salvation. But it's a surprising word. It's a word that people didn't see coming. It's a word that nobody expected to hear. Because he says this in verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel. Now, why Bethlehem Ephratah? What's that? Well, the Ephratah bit, that is just to designate this Bethlehem from all other Bethlehems. Okay, there, were, there was more than one Bethlehem in Israel at the time, just as today. There are the countries where you have multiple cities with the same name. So it was in Israel. You had a lot of Bethlehems, and Micah could have just been vague about it, would have increased his chances of being right, I suppose. But he decided to be specific. And he pinpoints this particular Bethlehem, which we know as the one nine kilometers to the south of Jerusalem. And he says, that one, that specific place is going to be where the Messiah is born. 700 years before it happened, Micah puts his finger on the map and says, that, that spot there. And I mean, this was Bethlehem really was an out of the way kind of place. Even though it was just south of Jerusalem. It was a bit of a nothing town. Nothing really happened there. I mean, Jerusalem was the big deal. Jerusalem was the capital city. That's where the temple was. That's where Mount Zion was. That was the center of Jewish life and faith and identity. Bethlehem was just nothing. It was just, it was just one of those places that you, you don't really go to Bethlehem. 
You just pass through it. It's a bit like Huntley. You know, you just, does anyone really go to Huntley? People just pass through Huntley, don't they? Maybe you go to McDonald's in Huntley, but you just go through. That's like Bethlehem. You know, you don't really, no one really goes there. It's just, it's just one of those places. It's like a truck stop on the way to somewhere else that you're going. It just didn't have much going for it. But Micah says, the attention of God has turned to Bethlehem. The favor of God is turning away from Jerusalem and towards this little pokey out of the way town named Bethlehem. And out of Bethlehem will come this ruler, this king, who will reign over Israel and who will set his people free. This is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. Now, you need to understand in in its own time, nobody looked at that prophecy and thought, oh, yes, he's talking about Jesus. There's a prophecy about the baby that's going to be born in the manger and there'll be shepherds and wise men. Nobody thought that because this is 700 years before all of that. What people thought was, fantastic, that's someone who's going to come and rescue us from these Assyrians who are on our doorstep. That was the present danger, yes? That was the real and present danger they were facing. So what people thought when Micah said these words is, someone is going to come from Bethlehem who's going to be a ruler over Israel and rise up and get rid of these Assyrians, get rid of that threat and give us back our freedom and give us back our autonomy and make us a great nation again. That's what they hoped for. That's what they expected. Nobody could have known that this was going to take 700 years to be fulfilled. Nobody could possibly have known this prophecy would sit there for 700 years. The Assyrian threat came and went. They didn't actually attack on that occasion. In fact, the Assyrian Empire came and went. And three subsequent empires came and went. And it wasn't until the Roman Empire came to power Finally, a baby was born in Bethlehem who fulfilled the words of this prophecy that had been sitting there for 700 years. Jesus of Nazareth was finally born. And even though it had been 700 years in the making, it was worth the wait because Jesus fulfills this prophecy in a way nobody ever could have imagined. Just look at the words Micah says. He talks about this ruler in verse 2. Being from old, he says, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Well, people probably thought that just meant this guy was going to have a long pedigree, a long genealogy. They never could have imagined. This is talking about Jesus who has origins that are eternal. Origins that aren't just old. Jesus has eternal origins because he's existed from eternity past, because he's part of God, because he's part of the Trinity. He's always been there. His his origins are eternal. They go back as far as anything could possibly go back. He is God. And when Micah says in verse 4, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Again, they're just picturing a human king who had this authority over, over nations of the earth. They never could have imagined this would be talking about Jesus, whose authority would stretch not over the nations of the earth, but over heaven and earth over all things, that he would be the Lord over all creation. Jesus fulfills the words of these prophecies far greater than anyone could ever have imagined. He supersedes anything that that these words could ever have predicted. And yet he still came from Bethlehem. Great as he was, even though he was Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world, he still came from, from little old Bethlehem, this little pokey out of the way town. And so I just want to ask and try to answer that question. Why Bethlehem? Why that place? Why did God choose that place of all places in the world for the Messiah to be born? And I think we get some clues in this passage. And the nature of Bethlehem itself tells us something about the nature of Jesus himself. 
and the way that he works in our lives and the way that he works in our world today. So I want to just touch on three brief reasons. Why Bethlehem? Why did God choose Bethlehem? Number one, because it was a royal birthplace. Because Bethlehem was a royal birthplace. Even in Micah's day, Bethlehem already had a little bit of a reputation. I've kind of underplayed it, but Bethlehem already did have a little bit going for it. It had a little bit of a reputation because Bethlehem was the birthplace of another very famous king in Israel's history. Anyone know who that was? King David. King David was born in Bethlehem, the greatest of all Israel's kings. That was his birthplace. God said to the prophet Samuel, go to Bethlehem, go to the house of Jesse and anoint for me the one I will show you. That was David. That was his birthplace. And he became the greatest of all Israel's kings. And God made these promises to David. You might have read them in the Old Testament where he says, one of your descendants, David, is going to sit on your throne and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And he will be a king who reigns over all. His kingdom will never end. That's a promise that God made to David. And so when Micah starts talking about this king who is going to come from Bethlehem, people immediately would have connected this with David. He, he is going to be the son of David. He's going to be the great Davidic king and he will sit on David's throne. And when you have that piece of the puzzle in place, when you see the connection with David, then there are other details in this passage that make sense. For example, Micah says in verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Well, who else in the Bible is called a shepherd? David, yeah? David was literally a shepherd. He was the shepherd boy with the staff and the harp and singing Psalm 23. He was the shepherd, you know? And then when he became a king, he was still called a shepherd. He was still the shepherd of Israel because he led the people of Israel as a shepherd. He guided them and he nurtured them and he, he watched over them. He was like a shepherd of his people. And so now Mike is saying this, this ruler will come and he will be a shepherd like David. He will be a king like David and he will rule in the same way that David rules. He will shepherd his people lovingly and kindly and graciously. So when you see Jesus fulfilling this prophecy, it all starts to line up with Jesus being the son of David, the true and rightful king. He was born in the same place as David. Yeah, That's why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem to register for the census. Yes, Because Jesus was descended from David. He was a descendant of David. He was born in the same town as David. He's a shepherd king like David. Tick, tick, tick. It's all lining up. Jesus is the king. That's what Bethlehem tells us. The reason God chose Bethlehem is because it ties Jesus to David and it tells us that he is the true and rightful king, not only over Israel, but of the whole world. Jesus is our true and rightful king. He is the one who holds this world in his hands. He is the one who holds our lives in his hands. He is the king of kings. That's what we celebrate at Advent, isn't it? That Jesus the king has come. And all that goes back to Bethlehem. And that's as true today as it was back then, isn't it? Jesus is still the king, is he? Yes, still the king, still ruling, still reigning, just as true today as it was back then. He is still Lord of all, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. He is in charge. He is on the throne. And what that means for us, here's the significance of this for our lives. We live in the promise of what Micah says here in the second half of verse four. He says, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Here's the truth. You and I can live securely because Jesus is king. There's a lot of things that are going to threaten our security in life. 
a lot of things that will destabilize us. There'll be health problems. Some of you are facing significant health problems or, or health problems within your family. Real battles, real tough times. These things destabilize us. Sometimes it's financial trouble. Sometimes it's relationships. Some of you are living in broken relationships that are just torn apart and completely fractured. Nothing like what they started off as being. These things are like they feel the ground is moving underneath your feet. Things you thought were so secure suddenly start shifting. Things you thought were going to be the same forever suddenly come apart and your world doesn't feel stable anymore. But here's the promise. We don't have to live in insecurity. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in anxiety because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is ruling and reigning. And no matter what happens, no matter what comes against us, Jesus is still on the throne. And we can look through and past our present experience and our present circumstance and we can see the sovereign guidance of Jesus over all things. That even when our lives are threatened, even when our security is threatened, we know that Jesus is still on the throne. He's still got this world in his hands. He's still got our lives in his hands. And so we can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. Yes, you can trust him with your circumstances. You can trust him with your family. You can trust him with your future because Jesus is king. And he's not just the king, he's the shepherd king. He doesn't rule with an iron fist. He rules as a shepherd. He rules lovingly. He rules like Psalm 23, leading you beside quiet waters, leading you into the green pastures, restoring your soul, leading you through the valley of the shadow of death, guiding you with his, with his staff, with his right hand. That is how Jesus leads. And he will guide you and he will lead you through whatever you're going through. And he will bring you through by his power and his presence as you trust in him. Christ is the king. So he reigns. He's got our lives and we can trust him. So Bethlehem's significant because it's a royal birthplace, because it makes Jesus the king in the line of David, and we can live securely because his greatness stretches to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a second reason that uh, Bethlehem is important. It's also important because it was a humble birthplace. It was a royal birthplace, and it was a humble birthplace. Look again in uh, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel. Bethlehem was small. It was small among the cities and the tribes. of uh, It wasn't a tribe, but there were chiefs of the city, and it was an insignificant place. It was small compared to Jerusalem. And it was small compared to another place just down the road as well called the Herodian. I think we've got a picture of it. There was this huge palace built by King Herod just down the road from Bethlehem. And it was a massive, massive place. It was a tower on a hill, and then there was a huge palace, an upper palace and a lower palace. It had a swimming pool. It had these sprawling gardens, and this was all built by King Herod, who had made himself the king of the Jews, so to speak. But he was really in the pocket of the Romans. He really just wanted to serve the Romans. And this whole palace, it wasn't even the main residence of Herod. This was just like one of his getaways, one of his fortresses that he decided to build. And he made sure it could be seen for miles around. It was, the, it was on the highest point, and it was the highest building for a long, long way. So you could see it for miles. You could probably see it from Bethlehem. It was that close. And so Bethlehem is literally sitting in the shadow of this building, the Herodian. And the, the, the beautiful irony of that, I think, is you've got Herod here, the king, and yet the true king of the world is born right under his nose, and he can't do a thing about it. It's this great 
providence of God in that situation. But it's significant, I think, when you think about Bethlehem and what Bethlehem was, and here's Jerusalem, and here's the Herodian, and here's Bethlehem. And yet God chose this place. He didn't choose Jerusalem, the center of Jewish power. He didn't choose the Herodian, the center of Roman power. He chose Bethlehem because it was a humble place. It was a nothing kind of place. But doesn't that tell you something about the way that God works? That so often God bypasses the great and the powerful and the, and the opulent and the flashy and the showy and the glamorous. So often he bypasses all of that and he works through the small and the lowly and the humble and the insignificant and the out of the way kind of situations and circumstances to bring about his plans and his purposes. That's what he did in Bethlehem. That's what he's still doing today. He's working through the small things to bring about his will. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a Vietnamese man named Hein Phim. And he was a translator working in Vietnam in the 1970s when Ravi did his crusade through that country and Hein Phim worked as a translator for him. And his English was so good that he worked as a translator for many different agencies that were coming through Vietnam at the time. And then Vietnam fell to communism in 1976. And Hein Fem was arrested, and he was put in prison, and he spent the next several years in and out of prison. And on one particularly long jail term that he had to serve, the whole purpose of his prison term and the whole, the whole purpose of those who were imprisoning him was to indoctrinate him, indoctrinate him against the West, in particular against capitalism and against Christianity. And so they would feed him all this propaganda, and they would constantly be talking to him about the evils of Christianity and just chiding him and encouraging him to renounce this faith that he had developed. And over time, it wore him down. Over time, it eroded his heart. And he started to ask questions. You know, have I, have I just been duped? Have I been lied to? This God that I thought was so real, maybe he doesn't exist after all. He got worn down and down until he eventually decided that the next day he would renounce his faith. He wouldn't pray anymore. And he'd never think again about Christianity. Well, the next day, Heinfem was given the duty of cleaning the toilets, which, as you can imagine, in that place was a pretty filthy job. And as he was cleaning out this tin can full of overflowing used toilet paper, he saw this little small scrap of paper with English written on it. And he hadn't seen English for a long time because everything he was given was either in Vietnamese or French. But he saw some English there, so he quickly wiped this paper off and put it in his pocket and saved it for later. And in his room that night, after his roommates had gone to sleep, he pulled out this little bit of paper. And in the light that was available to him, he read it. And it said these words. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. And he realized not only was this English, this was the Bible. And not only was it the Bible, this was the best possible verse that he could have been given for the circumstances that he was in. And in that moment, he cried out to God and he repented of wanting to turn away from God and recommitted his life to Jesus right there in his prison cell. The next morning, Heinfem volunteered to clean the toilets every day. And what he figured out over time is that every day there was another little scrap of paper because one of the prison guards was using a Bible as toilet paper. So every day there was more and more of the Bible and every day he would clean it off and every day he would put these pieces together and over time he would actually manage to stitch together significant portions of the Bible and it kept him encouraged and it kept him sustained and it kept him persevering in his faith through this ordeal until finally he was released. Amazing story, eh? Story of God's faithfulness 
in the midst of brutal circumstances. And I just think if, if God can work in the toilet of a Vietnamese prison camp, he can work pretty much anywhere, can't he? I mean, if he can work in Bethlehem and he can work in a Vietnamese prison camp, he can work anywhere. He works in all sorts of places and spaces that we would never expect, that we would never expect the kingdom of God to come. And yet the kingdom of God came into that place and the kingdom of God came into this pokey little nothing town called Bethlehem and the kingdom of God will come into the places of your life where you least expect it to show up. If we've got the eyes to see. But don't always look for God to do the big things. That's the problem, that we've got these blinders on. We only want Him to do extraordinary things. Sometimes God will do very, very ordinary things, but in extraordinary ways. And He'll show His power through ordinary little conversations. And He'll demonstrate His presence through little signs that if you've got the eyes to see it, they're right there, but you were just missing it before. And He'll show up in the lives of people around you that maybe you never expected to, to, to see anything. And yet there's God at work somehow. And there's the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't be closed off to it. If God can work in Bethlehem, He can work in all sorts of cracks and crevices of your life. And He already is. So just look for it. And God will show you where He's working. So Bethlehem's important because it was a royal birthplace. It's important because it was a humble birthplace. And then finally and briefly, Bethlehem is important because it's a meaningful birthplace. Do you know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? It means house of bread. I don't think anyone quite knows how it got that name, house of bread. Maybe it had some great bakeries in it, some lamingtons and custard squares and things. I don't know, some bread. Uh, but it's, uh, somehow that's the name in Hebrew, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread. And it's, isn't it significant in this delicious irony You have the one who comes from Bethlehem, stands up one day and says to the people, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry again. See, when Jesus said those words, we all thought that he was just using a nice metaphor. We never realized this goes back to his birthplace. This goes back to Micah 5. He's drawing all of that beautiful heritage and history and the prophetic tradition through and now telling us something about who he is and why he has come. I love the way that God chose This place, the house of bread, to send the bread from heaven, the true and living bread, who nourishes our souls. That's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is. He is the bread that truly satisfies our soul. He's the only one who can, truly satisfies us at the deepest level. You can run after a lot of things, trying to satisfy your soul, trying to find deep fulfillment in life. You can run after career. You can run after promotion. You can run after lifestyle. You can run after achievement. You can rest on great capabilities that you may have, but ultimately your soul will be restless until it finds its rest in Jesus because that's how you were created and that's how you were designed. And Jesus says, just come to me. I'm the bread from heaven. Whoever eats from me will never go hungry again. And so I just encourage you, many of you do know Jesus and you are saved by his grace, but maybe you've just stopped feeding on the sustenance that he gives by his grace and by his strength and by his power and by his word and by his spirit. But he's saying to you, hey, this Advent season, just come back again and feed on me the bread of life. I've got strength that's never going to run dry. I've got living water that will satisfy. I've got the bread from heaven. Just come to me is what he's saying. And I tell you where you can start is by feeding on this book. This is your daily bread. Yes? This is your daily bread. And what you can do through the Advent season, just start reading. 
If you've drifted away from this habit, just pick it up again. Start at Luke chapter 1. It'll work you towards and through the Advent story. Pick up the Gospel of Luke and just start reading. You feed on the daily bread and you just watch your, your, your strength, your spiritual strength be restored. Some of you have just become malnourished because you've not been feeding on the bread of life. Jesus says, come to me. I've got all the strength you need. It's right here. And so as we close, let me read you the lines of that great old Christmas carol. We're going to sing it together in a minute. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shining, the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So true, those words. The hopes and fears of all the years, all the longings and the hopes and the aspirations of Israel, of God's people, all met in Jesus. And our hopes and longings continue to be met and our fears relieved in Jesus Christ and nowhere else and no one else today. And whether or not you ever get to Bethlehem today, and if you do, fantastic, but if you don't, far more important is that you know the Christ of Bethlehem, that you know Jesus as the King of Kings, that you know him as the humble king who works in the small and insignificant ways, and that you know him as the bread of heaven who truly satisfies. So may we come, as it were, with the shepherds and the wise men this Christmas and bow down at the manger, come to Bethlehem and worship Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, and our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for this place, a real point in this world where heaven came to earth and the light came into the darkness and you were born. We thank you for that little town of Bethlehem and all that it tells us about who you are. Lord Jesus, I want to pray that even though the story of your birth is so familiar, and we can just cruise through this time of year, not really thinking, not really paying attention to it at all. I want to pray, Jesus, that you would come into our lives in a fresh way, in a new and significant way. Pray that you would reveal yourself as our king in a fresh way, the one in whom we can trust securely because you hold our lives in your hands. I want to pray, God, that you would show us those small ways that you are at work. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to see things we've never seen to see all the ways that your hand is at work and your presence and power is coming to earth. And Jesus, I pray that you'd lead us again to feast on you the bread of heaven. Lord God, we thank you that you invite us to come, to come to that feast, to come to the table, to be nourished. And God, some here are empty and uh, longing, longing to be fed. And we thank you, God, that you satisfy us deeply at the deepest level of our being. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are, our Savior, our King, our Messiah. Lord, help us to keep our hearts, our minds, our eyes set on you through this Advent season, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.